Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. You're listening to episode 187 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, Jimmy will be answering more of your weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Happy New Year, Jimmy. Happy New Year to you, Dom, and to all the listeners. Yes, Happy New Year, everyone. It's a New Year's Eve, and so we're bringing you another episode of Weird Questions with Jimmy and Cy Kellett of Catholic Answers Live. Jimmy, what weird questions will you be answering this time? We're going to be talking about whether there could be dinosaurs in heaven, Jesus's DNA, lying angels, a rebooted universe, and marrying aliens, among other topics. Interesting. Good questions. So let's listen to your answers. Uh, as, again, as I said, I'm not going to be giving out the number, folks. I'm just going to be reading the questions. Uh, the first comes from Julia, whose question is actually from her five-year-old. Jimmy, will there be dinosaurs in heaven? Well, we aren't told the answer to this question in Scripture or in the faith. Now, there's a common opinion that uh, theologically, among theologians historically, that animals will not be in heaven because they don't have the kind of rational souls that we do. Uh, and it's often thought that you need a rational soul to survive death. But that's just an opinion, and it's really based on philosophical argument rather than on the teaching of the faith. And so consequently, the church doesn't address that issue. And it, uh, one could also have the opinion that animals will be present in heaven. And if so, dinosaurs are so cool that I think there would be an interesting case uh, that God would have dinosaurs around. I am sure that that is, I, I, I am virtually sure, I am of a moral certainty that you share that view uh, with uh, Julia's five-year-old, that dinosaurs are cool. Uh, Julia, thanks for the question. Thanks for starting us off with weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. The next one, Jimmy, comes from Dan. In the book, in the book of Tobit, the angel Raphael says that he is their kinsman. In Tobit 5.13, he claims to be the son of a man named Hananiah. Is he lying? It never says that he eats. Wouldn't Tobit, no, excuse me, wouldn't Tobiah notice the, that or is, is it just assumed that he does? Well, um, so th this is a perennial question. Now, we should note that Tobit appears to be a book that is not meant to be a straightforward historical account. Uh, St. John Paul II notes that it appears to be more kind of an extended parable, and therefore uh, we may not be meant to press the details of it too tightly, just like we're not meant to press the details of Jesus's parables too tightly, in which case it might not be possible to say that Raphael is actually lying because this isn't actually a historical account of what Raphael actually did. This is an imaginative parable. 
On the other hand, uh, at least as the text is written, Raphael would seem to be lying because he says he's born of a particular man with a particular name and that he's a kinsman of Tobit. And at least taking those terms in in their ordinary sense, none of that's true. Now, you could try to mount a, a defense and say, well, he's using some kind of mental reservation or set of mental reservations. So these aren't technically lies, but they sure do appear to be untruths. Um, That then leads to some other suggestions. I saw one person suggest that maybe Tobit or maybe Raphael is, is actually using the body of a willing human being who is a son of Hananiah and who is a kinsman of Tobit's. And so none of those things would actually be false. It's really an angel using the body of a human. But we don't have any indication of that in the text. It would account, if that was true, for why he saw uh, Raphael eating. And he does indeed see Raphael eat during the course of the book. But we don't have any indication that he's using the body of a willing human being. And that actually seems to be contradicted later in the book. If you look in Tobit 1219, Tobit is explaining the fact that he's really an angel. And he's, uh, Raphael is explaining the fact he's really an, really an angel. And he, he says, all these days I merely appeared to you and did not eat or drink, but you were seeing a vision. So the explanation that the book itself provides for us is that uh, Raphael did appear to eat and drink, but uh, Tobit was only seeing and his son Tobias were only seeing a vision. Dan, uh, thank you for that weird question. Appreciate it. Jimmy Aiken is our guest, and it's going to be all weird questions this hour because it's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. That's the name of the show. You should have expected it. This next one comes from Rob. Can we be living in a rebooted universe? What if in Revelation, John actually saw a previous universe in which Jesus was born for the first time in Mary, as in Revelation 12, and then once he was swept up to God, that rebooted our universe so that in the universe we live in, Jesus has existed since the beginning. All the while, the previous universe existed in an alternate alternative timeline, which John saw destroyed and wrote it down in Revelation. That qualifies as a weird question, by the way. It does. Now, the book of Revelation both starts and concludes by telling us that it's a vision that John received to show Christ's servants what would happen soon. And so that should be our starting point in trying to figure out how the book relates to history. We should assume that most of it is going to be happening soon from John's perspective. Now, We therefore start reading the book, and it does indeed seem to be describing things that are starting to happen soon after John's perspective, when you understand the symbols correctly. He seems to be talking about events going on in the first century. But then when we hit Revelation chapter 12, suddenly we jump backwards in time, it seems, and see the birth of Christ. And then we pick up where we had left off in the sequence of events and keep moving forward. And so there's a a conscious, obvious anomaly in chapter 12, where it looks like we jump backwards in time to see the birth of Christ. If I understand Rob correctly, what he's proposing is that really all of that material 
up to chapter 12 is a prior universe, and then Jesus gets born, and either we 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 skip forward to our universe, or we skip forward to our universe to see the birth of Christ, and then proceed forward in our universe from chapter 12 onward. I don't think that that's likely for a few reasons. Um, one of them is that John's in John's day, they didn't have the concept of alternative timelines. And so if you had discussed this with John or with his original audience, and we need to read it through their eyes, if you discussed it with the original author or the audience, they wouldn't have understood the concept of an alternative timeline, much less skipping between them, because they didn't have all the fiction that we do today involving alternative timelines. So since they wouldn't have been familiar with those concepts, I don't think that's a logical way to interpret the text, or at least not a plausible way to interpret the text. I also don't think it fits some of the details, because if you look at the material leading up to chapter 12, and then the material that follows chapter 12, it's clear that it's part of the same overall pattern. If you look at um, the judgments, that are happening, you know, first we have the seven seals, and then we have the seven trumpets, and during the course of the seven trumpets, like a third of different things are destroyed, and then we pick up after chapter 12 with the seven bowls, and in the seven bowls, the remainder of everything is destroyed. So it looks like we're proceeding through the same sequence of things, and it would be much more natural to assume that this is just a jump backwards in time to see the birth of Christ, which is something that John and his audience would have been familiar with. You can have flashbacks in ancient fiction uh, or in ancient literature. Um, the And because this wouldn't have been a natural concept for them and it doesn't fit other details in the text, I think the opening and closing statements that the book of Revelation deals with what will happen soon are the governing factors. So I think those still govern how we should interpret the text, uh, because most of the book would not be happening soon if the first half of it is dealing with a prior universe. Rob, thank you very much for a genuinely weird question for Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken on this Friday afternoon. Uh, we're doing weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. Uh, Vicky sent a weird question. This is hers. Why is it in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is clothed with a robe of scarlet, then in Mark and John, it is purple? That is attention to detail, Vicky. Yeah, so you can look up these passages. It's described as uh, scarlet in Matthew 27, 28. And the Greek word that Matthew uses there is kokinos. In Mark fifteen seventeen and John nineteen two, though it's described as purple, and the word that John uses is porphyron, and they do those words do ordinarily mean scarlet and purple. Now it's clear, and commentators have pointed this out that part of what Mark and John are making clear is that the soldiers are mocking the fact that Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews. And in the ancient world, purple was a sign of royalty. It it was very expensive because in order to make good purple dyes, 
you had to go to some rather extreme lengths. There was a kind of purple known as Tyrian purple because they made it in Tyre, you know, the city we hear about, the Tyre and Sidon, that's where they made it. And uh, in order to make it, you had to go fishing and you had to capture a kind of sea snail known as a murex. And then once you got the murex sea snails, you mashed them up and used their mucus which would be purple, and you made the purple dye out of the out of the murex sea snail mucus. Oh. Now, they didn't have good aquaculture back then, and so you couldn't commercially farm the murex sea snails. You just had to catch them. And as a result, you didn't get very many of them, and so Tyrian purple was very expensive. So the only the upper class could afford it, and that's why it's associated with the aristocracy. In Rome... There were even regulations about who got to wear Tyrian purple, like if you could maybe put a a single stripe of it down your garment if you had a certain social rank. But really, only the emperor had full permission to wear Tyrian purple. If you if you were wearing it and you weren't him, it was a problem. And that's why historically, even later on in history, purple is associated with royalty. So by um, stressing the purplish aspect of the garment they put on Jesus, Mark and John are highlighting the fact that the Romans are mocking his claim to be king of the Jews. So that leaves us with the question of, well, exactly what color was this garment? Well, Matthew says scarlet, and that certainly fits the kind of garments that Roman soldiers would often have access to, because even if they didn't wear purple, they often did wear scarlet. You know, if you look at pictures of Roman soldiers, they're often depicted wearing like a purple kind of robe, outer garment or a purple sash or, you know, it's kind of purple poncho or sorry, scarlet poncho. Okay. Yeah. And so one idea that's been proposed by commentators is that uh, what they what the soldiers really had access to was a scarlet garment and they put that on him. But since scarlet kind of blends into purple, so it's a little purplish, it's not just straight red, it's kind of purplish red or darker red, that um, Mark and John highlight that purplish aspect, that darker aspect, to make it clear what they're doing. On the other hand, um, it could be that they did have access to a a true purple garment. I mean, they were at a governor's palace, Mm -hmm. you know. So um, what other options do we have? Well, one of the things that scholars have noted, and this is not biblical scholars, but linguists, linguistic scholars have noted, is that different languages have different primary color terms. And the number of color terms they have varies widely. All languages have at least two primary color terms. And if they have only two, they are always black and white. So no matter what color something is, if it's a light color, it's going to be white. If it's a dark color, it's going to be black. But that's what you do if you have only two color terms. If a language has a third primary color term, the third primary color term is always red. 
And there are probably evolutionary reasons for those being the first three colors. You know, we're diurnal rather than nocturnal creatures, so light and darkness is important to us. And then blood is very well connected with uh, danger and biology, so yeah. red makes a, li- a logical third term. If there is a fourth primary color term, it is always either green or yellow, oh. one of those two. And then if there is a fifth primary color term, it'll be the reverse. So if green was the fourth term, yellow will be the fifth. When you get to the sixth term, it's blue. When you get to the seventh turn, term, it's brown. And when you get to the eighth or higher terms, it'll either be pink, purple, orange, or gray. So there's this definite sequence in human consciousness that governs the order in which languages have color terms given how many a given language has. Right. Now, you'll notice purple doesn't show up until you've hit like the seventh color term or more. And so a lot of languages don't actually have a term for purple. In fact, the dialect of Aramaic that I'm most familiar with, it's the dialect Surath, uh, which is spoken as a home language by modern Chaldeans. It does not have a term for purple. And so what do you do if you're looking at a color that in English would be called purple, but you don't have a term for purple? Well, purple falls between blue and red. So if it's a bluish kind of purple, you might say, oh, this is blue. And if it's a reddish kind of purple, you Ah. might say, oh, this is red. Well, it so happens that Tyrian purple the kind of purple that the aristocracy had access to is also it's known as not just as Tyrian purple. It's also known as Phoenician purple because Tyre is in Phoenicia and it's known as Phoenician red because Uh it's a reddish purple. And so it could be that even though the guards had access to a what we would call a purple cloak and what you would call a purple cloak in Greek, it was this Tyrian reddish purple that that Matthew speaking Aramaic might not have had the term for. And so since it's a reddish purple, he called it scarlet. That is a great weird question and a very weird answer because humans are so weird. It's so interesting. uh, I never thought about color in that way. Ah, Great one. Thanks very much, Vicky, for that weird question. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken this hour. Julia's next. On a previous show, you spoke before on the question of whether marriage would be possible between humans and aliens. Now we know we're into a weird questions hour with Jimmy. We got to the aliens. The answer hinged on whether procreation would be possible. What if procreation would be possible, but the resulting offspring were sterile like mules? Would that affect the possibility of marriage? Okay, so I should kind of refresh a little bit on that previous answer. Um, I don't claim to know because we don't have any examples to study of whether marriage between a human and an extraterrestrial would be valid or not. And I, I know moral theologians would make different arguments about the possibility of its validity based on, well, if it's some might say, well, if it's a rational being, marriage might be possible. On the other hand, if it's possible to successfully breed like with a human and a Vulcan giving us Mr. Spock, then because the biological definition of species is two things that can successfully breed together, 
Vulcans would just be an exotic form of the same species as humans. And if you could successfully breed, well, they would seem to be just weird humans and two humans can marry each other, whether they're weird or not. And so that would seem to be a case where you could marry. Having said that, suppose Mr. Spock is then infertile. So he's a mule. He can't breed just like the offspring of a donkey and a horse typically can't. In that case, I would say it probably wouldn't affect the validity of the marriage because two ordinary infertile humans can breed and have a child. And that even though the child's infertile, it didn't make their parents' marriage invalid. And I would say the same thing would hold true if a human and an extraterrestrial could breed but have infertile offspring. We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Aaron W., Rocco F., Matthew K., Teresa H., and Robert G. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Yesterday, before the show, uh, Jimmy Aiken singing the theme song to H.R. Puff and stuff. Today, it's the association, the song Windy, but he changed the words to be about Gandhi. It's, I yeah. wish people could join you when you're, <laughs> when you're not on the air, Jimmy. <laughs> uh, not giving out the phone number today because it's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken and all the questions have already been submitted and uh, authorized as weird enough for the show. Dan asks this question, which I am actually, it's a three-parter and I'm very interested in the answer. Is raising your arm telekinesis? Is telekinesis limited to moving your own body? How do spirits move objects? Okay, so... Um We'll start with the first part of the question, is raising your arm telekinesis? Well, it's definitely kinesis. Kinesis is a Greek word that means motion. And if you move your arm by raising it, well, you're moving your arm. And so that's an example of kinesis. The question is whether it counts as telekinesis. Well, tele, it comes from another Greek root, and it means at a distance. So um, that's why television is called television because we're seeing things at a distance. Okay. Or and it's why telephones are called telephones because we're hearing things at a distance. And so telekinesis would mean moving or influencing things at a distance. And uh, the way moving your arm is normally conceived of it wouldn't be telekinesis per se, because your arm is not at a distance from you. It's part of your body. Normally, we reserve the word telekinesis for moving things that are not attached to your body and that you're not in physical contact with. Like if I have a 10-foot pole, I might move something that I would only touch with a 10-foot pole by poking it with the pole. But even though that's at a 10-foot distance, it's still physically connected to my body through the pole. And so it wouldn't be telekinesis. Having said that, you could say, well, spiritual entities like uh, angels can move things. You know, they can they can uh, they can 
affect physical objects and they don't even have bodies. And so that would kind of count as telekinesis. They're moving things that aren't in physical connection to their bodies because they don't have one. So you could conceive of that as moving things at a distance. And if spirits can do that like angels, well, what about human spirits? You could propose that human spirits have a kind of limited ability that could be called telekinesis, but is primarily directed to our own bodies that allow us through our central nervous system to control the motions of our body. And so that could be how you conceive of it. The question would then be, could humans influence using their spirit? Could human or their mind use this ability to control or affect things other than their bodies. And that's the, the option that parapsychologists study when they do experiments on telekinesis. It's also called psychokinesis. It's also called remote influencing. And they even distinguish between different types of, uh, of telekinesis. One of them is called macro PK or macro psychokinesis, which is the ability to influence large things on the macro scale, like levitating a person or a table or bending a spoon. Um, and then there's micro psychokinesis, which is the proposed ability of human consciousness to affect things on a small scale, like the temperature reading of a thermistor or what path an electron goes down in a circuit. So you could maybe affect a random number generator. And there have been studies that parapsychologists have been doing on both macro psychokinesis and micro psychokinesis. And they have mixed results. And, you know, this isn't the format to debate those results, but I'll just note there are mixed results. Um, interestingly, St. Thomas Aquinas and if you want to hear about this, you can listen to episode 106 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. St. Thomas Aquinas thought humans do have a limited natural ability to remotely influence things. So and today we would call that telekinesis. Um, now, in Aristotelian science, you couldn't have action at a distance. Uh, like you couldn't have a, a, a one body influencing another without some kind of medium in between you, even if it's just air. Now, today, we don't have a problem with that. Newton's gravity showed us, yeah, you can have one body affecting another, even if there's a vacuum between them. But under the Aristotelian science that Aquinas was using, you needed some kind of medium, at least air. And so Aquinas thought that the human remote influencing ability was transmitted through air. And he thought that this was the explanation for the evil eye. He thought that if a human soul was vehemently moved to hatred, that influence could travel through the air and affect another person, especially since this is a weak ability. It's not a really strong one. Um, he thought like children who have weaker physical frames would be especially vulnerable to the influence of the evil eye. Um, but uh, so he thought it was possible for humans to remotely influence or act telekinetically on other bodies. Modern science in parapsychology, though, has mixed results on that question. But if okay. you want to find out about a micro telekinetic experiment that I recently did, Listen to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World in two weeks. 
Oh, tease, a tease for Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, Dan, in two weeks. Thanks for the question, Dan. It's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. Paul asks, if we happen to colonize Mars in the future, would we have to update the missile to replace Earth with Mars? I would have to do some checking on what the missile actually says. Um, Now, in... In the typical edition of the missile, which is in Latin, there are different terms, um, some of which just mean world, like mundus means world. And if you're translating the missile into English or Martian or whatever language you're using on Mars, you could just translate it as world. And in that case, you'd be praying for Mars, even if you're not specifically saying Mars. Or you could mean the world more broadly. You could also translate it cosmos, meaning the entire world, all of the cosmos. Um, I'm not aware of are there any passages in the Roman Missal that refer to Earth specifically. I assume the Latin word there would be terra. Um, Terra can mean Earth. And so if there are passages in the Latin Missal that refer to Terra, you might need to change those to Mars. On the other hand, you might not. You can pray for a place even if you're not there. Like in in the gospel, or I'm sorry, in the Psalms, it talks about, and in the Bible in general, it talks about praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Well, you don't have to be in Jerusalem to pray for Jerusalem. In the same way, you could pray for Earth even if you're not on Earth. So you might not need to change all such passages. However, if there are passages that say things like, "Oh God, please bless those of us who are living here on Earth." and you're not living on Earth, then you would presumably want to change those to something like, oh, God, please bless those of us who are living here on Mars. Uh, Paul, thanks for that. Um, I want a a quick follow-up conversation here, just between you and me, Jimmy. I have started to think in recent years, it's more likely that we'll colonize Venus than Mars. Because really? because you can live in the you know in dirigibles in the atmosphere of Venus, yeah, true, and and the yeah. gravity is the same. You don't have and it and then it the atmosphere provides you some protections that you wouldn't get on Mars. It's starting mm-hmm. to seem to me like Venus might actually be a a better option. But it, we, if we, it has, it, yeah, go ahead. It has been proposed that Venus would be more colonizable than. You might suspect, especially if you have cloud based cities. Yeah. You know, like like you mentioned. Um, However, in terms of what's going to happen first, even though you have an argument that Venus might be a better place to go. Elon Musk is already planning on having humans on Mars by 2024 to 2026. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, Yeah. Uh, You can't fight nature, uh, the government or Elon Musk. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. Jimmy Aiken, our guests. We're doing weird questions with Jimmy Aiken today. Uh, Jimmy Leslie asks this. There are loving Catholics who state the CCC, uh, the um, Catechism of the Catholic Church, supports a vegan diet. Their reasoning? They say the catechism forbids us causing animals needless suffering. They say we don't need to eat them to live. Therefore, killing them for food is causing them needless suffering. Your thoughts? So um, this is, I, I, I like the fact that these people are trying to think through the principles 
that underlie the text of the catechism, because the catechism does, you know, say we shouldn't cause animals needless suffering. It does contain that principle. Then um, they go on to say that we that we don't need to eat them, and therefore this is needless suffering. And that's not what the catechism says. If you look at the catechism and where you want to look is paragraphs 2417 and 2418, you'll find that the catechism, even though it contains this principle that we shouldn't cause animals needless suffering, it also recognizes that that is not an unlimited principle. And humans do have needs, including food, that animals can satisfy. And so if you read what the catechism says, it says, God entrusted animals to the stewardship of those whom he created in his own image, meaning us, the human race. Hence, it is legitimate to use animals for food and clothing. So you can't say the catechism supports this when the catechism draws a different conclusion. You could say some of the principles could point in this direction if you buy certain other things, but you can't just say the catechism supports this because it doesn't. Um, it then goes on to say they, meaning animals, may be domesticated to help man in his work and leisure. So you can use a horse to pull a plow or you can go horse riding for fun. Medical and scientific experimentation on animals is a morally acceptable practice if it remains within reasonable limits and contributes to caring for or saving human lives. And then in the next paragraph, it says it is contrary. This is another principle that the catechism contains. And this is one that the folks who would make this argument seem to be ignoring. It is contrary to human dignity to cause suffering. Oh, I'm sorry. This is actually one that agrees with them. It is contrary to human dignity to cause animals to suffer or die needlessly. So the catechism buys that. But it then goes on to say it is likewise unworthy to spend money on them that should, as a priority, go to the relief of human misery. One can love animals. One should not direct to them the affection due only to persons. And that's uh, something that um, people who make this argument would seem to be ignoring. That's a principle that they are not taking into account, that one should not give animals the kind of affection that we give to other humans. Uh, you can't eat other humans. But you and while we need to care about animals and not cause them needless suffering, Humans do have needs, including food that animals can satisfy, and we shouldn't elevate animals to the unkillable status of human beings. All right. Important tip. You can't eat other human How, beings. However, since it's Weird Question Day in the future, we're going to have lab-grown meat anyway. So this is a temporary thing. I don't know why that grosses me out. I can't put my finger on why that grosses me out. But you're not used to it yet. It's like anything. This is actually this is something that has been studied by anthropologists. Um, humans, you may notice how when you have children, right, side? Yeah, three. Yeah. Yeah. So when they were first born, like one year old, they would put anything in their mouth. Right. Oh, yeah, that's true. I'm sure you had to stop them from putting stuff in their mouths. Right. And then a year or two or three later, they suddenly become incredibly picky eaters. Right. Remember that? And they've stayed that yeah. way all the way into their adulthood. Yes. <laughs> right. Well, there's uh, anthropologists have studied the reason for this. And um, the best theory 
is that babies need to be because we're omnivores babies need to be uh programmed at birth to be willing to eat whatever food is in the area okay because because you don't know whether as a as an embryo whether you're going to be born in Africa or near the north pole and that's going to have are you going to be eating blubber or are you going to be eating you know mangoes or whatever it may be right and so you need to be able to eat anything. You need to be willing to eat anything early. And that's why babies put anything in their mouth early on. But not everything in their in the environment they're born into is going to be safe. And so they need to learn what are the safe things to eat by watching the adults around them and by eating the foods the adults give them. And so. A, a few years after birth, after they've acquired that experience of what do we eat, given that we live in this area, the preference flip, the preference switch flips and they suddenly become limited to they only want to eat the foods they're used to because those are the safe ones. And, uh, it, yeah. and it, it requires additional time and experience for them to venture outside of that comfort zone. Well, the reason probably that I well, OK, I'll personalize to myself first. The reason I'm not comfortable eating certain foods that other cultures do eat, like maybe black pudding, which in, which is a sausage made from blood. They eat it over in the UK, but I'm not used to eating blood pudding. And so I find it icky. Yeah. Well, probably the reason you would find lab grown meat icky is because you're not used to it. They probably but love it in the UK, though. After <laughs> after you've eaten, you know, a dozen burgers that, yeah. that are lab grown and taste better just about great, it. you probably feel better. Um. Yeah, my son uh, learned that my I have to, my son is about four years old. He's got something in his mouth. My brother says to him, "What's in your mouth?" And he says, "A choking hazard." Because <laughs> <laughs> his mother had always said to him, "Don't put that in your mouth. That's a choking hazard." So he said, "A choking hazard." Uh, of, course, of course, on Ferenginar, you know how kids are. Everything goes straight into their ears. Oh, that's I I know those Ferengi in their ears. Uh, Martin uh, asks. What's the difference in blessings? I bless myself and my children. How effective is that versus a blessing done by a priest? There's not a hard and fast answer to this that the church has provided. The church does. Now, anybody can invoke God's blessing on someone. When you bless someone, all you're doing is asking that God do something nice for this person. And I, in fact, if you want to more about blessing and cursing, you can listen to the recent episode of Mysterious World on curses, which are mm -hmm. the flip side of blessings. Well, anybody can ask God for a favor, either for himself or for another person. And so anybody can do a blessing. The question is, will God listen to that person? I mean, how, how much weight is that request going to have? And there's a certain basic level that it has for anybody because we're all God's creatures and he loves us all. So he's going to have a certain inclination to reward requests for blessings from anybody. On the other hand, there are some people who either by virtue of their relationship with another person, like a parent, God might give some extra weight to. Yeah. So having a, a parent blessing a child is something that, um, could have some extra weight. And that was certainly a belief in, in biblical culture. If you look at the book of Genesis, for example, when, um, when 
uh, when Jacob is getting ready to die, he blesses all of his sons in different ways and also has a few curses in there. Um, and in the intertestamental or second temple literature, there are entire books of imaginative blessings given by patriarchs to their descendants. So you have the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, for example, where each founder of a tribe of Israel is represented as blessing that tribe that came from him. Also, uh, other people can have extra pull with God by virtue of the fact that they're especially holy. James, for example, says the prayer of a righteous man avails much. So if I've got a living saint that I have access to, I would rather have his blessing than, say, the blessing of a psychopath like Charles Manson. This living saint's probably going to have more heft with God. Well, other people have special heft with God by virtue of their ordination, and that would seem to be the case for priests. So I would say, in principle, there are reasons why certain blessings will have more effect than others, but we don't have a way of quantifying that, and it may vary depending on the circumstance. For example, the blessing given by a holy father to his children might count for more than the blessing given by an unholy priest oh. to those same people who are not his children. So I, it may if it may involve a multiplicity of these factors. Uh, thanks uh, very much uh, for that uh, question. Let me just remind myself. Oh, yeah. Martin uh, gave us that question. It's weird uh, questions with Jimmy Aiken. All the questions have been submitted already to us via the Internet. If you have weird questions that you'd like uh, or a weird question that you would like Jimmy to address on a future episode, you can always send them to us at radio at catholic.com radio at catholic.com or if you're one of those folks who's in direct contact with jimmy through social media or whatnot you can send them to jimmy if you have a way to do that uh, we'll try to get them all together and ask jimmy the weirdest and uh the next one i have to say i am not excited about asking but here we go bobby's question okay what happened to christ's foreskin from his circumcision clipped fingernails hair he shed or anything else he left behind containing his DNA. We know that his humanity is sacred, but on a practical level, how far do we take that in our understanding of it? So DNA is essentially information. And there's, you know, Christ had human DNA in his human nature, but that DNA would not of itself be magical. It was human. It was human DNA, so it wasn't intrinsically divine in some way. If I took a bunch of nucleotides, that's what DNA is made of. There's four nucleotides that go by the letters uh, G, C, A, and T. Um, If I took just a random bunch of nucleotides that didn't come from Jesus and put them in the same sequence as the DNA that's in Jesus's cells, that wouldn't make the new helix I had made sacred. Somehow, just because it had this any more than a picture or photograph of Jesus would automatically become divine. Now, I might respect it because it represents Jesus. It bears similarities to Jesus. Like if I had a real photograph of Jesus, that would be very precious to me. Because even though it's not itself sacred, it represents to me someone who is. And similarly, if I had a strand that was of DNA that I had made that was identical to Jesus's DNA, that would be precious. 
but it wouldn't be divine. Jesus is not hypostatically united to this bunch of nucleotides I threw together in a particular sequence. So what Jesus is hypostatically united to, meaning he's one person with, is what's actually part of his body. Things that were part of his body and leave it are no longer hypostatically united to him. So Jesus, like all of us, would have fingernails that needed to be clipped. He would naturally lose hair once they reached their terminal length, and then they would grow back in. His skin, he'd have skin cells that would fleck off and things like that. Um, We know he spit, like when he mixed mud to cure a blind man. Uh, There would have been some of his cells in the spit. But those things are no longer part of his body, and so they're no longer divine. They're no longer part of his person, and so they're not hypostatically united to him. If you have a hair from Jesus's head, it's not God. Now, if today we found such a hair and knew for a fact it came from Jesus, it would be very precious. It wouldn't be God, but it would still be precious because we don't have many such hairs. They're rare. I mean, it would probably be the only one we have, although there may be people claiming to have locks of his hair. Down through in his own day, though, people didn't do anything special. We don't have any record of Mary or Joseph or Jesus or his followers keeping his hairs or keeping his fingernail clippings or keeping his skin cells or keeping his foreskin. Um, We do in the Middle Ages have people claiming to have such bodily relics of Jesus, but historians consider most of these to be very unlikely to be authentic. Um, We just don't have a record of of them being saved, and it's improbable that they would have been saved, just like we have some people claim to have vials of Mary's milk. Very improbable. So uh, if you want to look up about Jesus's foreskin, though, there are people who claim to have it. It's called the Holy Prepuce. Uh, thanks, Bobby, for that uh, question. You both could have just talked about Jesus' baby teeth, and we could have avoided a lot of uh, me being uncomfortable with that question. Jimmy, thanks very much. I always appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, I look forward to more weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. Hey, if you want to visit, uh, or if you want to get uh, listen in on Jimmy's uh, podcast that dropped today, Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, it's the one on lie detector tests. I'm going to be listening to it right now on the way home so I can learn how to defeat those lie detector tests in case anything goes really wrong in my life and I am facing one. Uh, Jimmy, we'll see you next week. Okay. Uh, Thank you all for uh, joining us on this first Friday of Advent. So those are some great weird questions and great answers. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? This week we have an unusual sounds theme for mysterious headlines. There's been a question for some time about do the northern lights, the aurora borealis, do more than just shine light? Do they make sounds? Historically, there have been reports that they do, that you can hear them making sounds when you see them, but not everybody hears those sounds. It's been a bit of a mystery as a result, and historically, a lot of scientists dismissed the idea that they would make any sounds, at least ones that humans could hear way down here on the Earth's surface. Well, it turns out now we have some evidence that they actually do make sounds within the human range of hearing that can be heard from Earth's surface. So check out this article, which includes links to video where you can hear what they sound like. 
Also, another unusual sound, a uh, over-the-counter pain relief, a company in England that makes an over-the-counter pain reliever, has also now made a song designed to help alleviate pain. They tested a bunch of different sounds and instruments and found which ones helped people take their focus off their pain and feel better, and then they composed songs uh, that uh, that incorporated these sounds, and then they tested the song. So uh, check out a link to the uh, to the story about this pain-relieving song that they've released. And if you're in uh, pain right now and need direct relief, we'll also have a direct link to where you can hear the song on Spotify. Awesome. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. You can send us your feedback by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, or calling us on our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515 and leaving us a voicemail. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, for our first brand new episode of the year, we're going to be tackling the subject of demons head on for the first time in the show. We've often mentioned demons because it's always demons, but next week we're going to take a close look at that idea, at how often demons are actually involved, and how we can tell when they are or aren't. Cool, very cool. Folks, remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Also, Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is brought to you in part by Fearvento Law, PLLC, specializing in adult guardianships and conservatorships, probate and estate planning matters, accepting clients throughout Michigan, taking into account your individual health care, financial and religious needs. Visit fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thank you, Dom, and Happy New Year, everyone. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest, and Happy New Year, everyone. Howdy, folks. This is Jimmy Akin with a special message as we approach the Christmas season. This past year, the StarQuest Network has continued to expand our mission of exploring the intersection of faith and pop culture through our many entertaining and informative programs. Here on Mysterious World, we've recently added video to the podcast, and we need to continue improving it with better cameras, lights, and editing, as well as continuing to produce our weekly look at the fascinating mysteries you enjoy. That's why it's very important that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we thank you, and we ask you to consider increasing your support if you're able. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one. Every gift counts. Whatever level of support you can offer, please show your support for SQPN this Christmas, and remember, your gifts may be tax-deductible. To find out more, just go to sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. May God bless you this Advent, and may you have a blessed Christmas season.